Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Few technologies offer to change our lives more profoundly than driverless cars. Autonomous vehicles offer promises of increased safety, efficiency, and mobility. But today we'll be taking a look at some of the risks and legal consequences that come with autonomous vehicles. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Our guest today is James Anderson, the head of the Justice Policy Program at the think tank Rand Corporation. James, welcome to Talks on Law. Thanks, Joel. We're going to be talking about liabilities. We're going to be talking about legal risks. Uh, But why don't we start with the technology itself? I imagine most of our audience is familiar with the concept, but what, what do we mean when we say autonomous? Well, that's that's a good question. And there's some ambiguity in the definitions. What what used to be known as the Society for Automotive Engineers, uh, SAE, has come up with a a rough tax. Uh, What what is that? Is that an industry org? Uh, It is. It's an organization of uh, automotive engineers that have at various times uh, taken on the role of creating taxonomies and, and definitions. Uh, essentially doing the very important, um, uh, but at times not particularly exciting work of making sure everybody's on the same page when they're talking about uh, you know something to do with automobiles or automotive technology. Um, so they have their definition, and it's uh, well, yeah, I, they have they've created sort of this framework from from zero to five. Zero is basically uh, a motor and a and four wheels. Ex- exactly, but but it can also actually include uh, automatic automatic emergency braking. So it can, can include sort of momentary bits of of automation. The SAE's framework includes sort of level one, which includes the uh, the vehicle performing sort of one task, uh, like adaptive cruise control or uh, lane keeping assist, where the the steering wheel will will detect the lane markers and. Oh, keep so lane, lane keeping assist, which in my mind is already somewhat sophisticated. That's that's level one. That is actually level one, and then level two is that if it does both of those at the same time. Uh, so if it does adaptive cruise control and lane keeping assist. Now, in those circumstances, sort of the important point is that the driver, the human, needs to be paying attention at all times. And that there can be no even momentary reliance on the vehicle. Now, Because yeah, you could be staying in your lane, but, uh, you know, a deer runs in front of yeah, you. Yeah, a deer could be running. And, and it's more that it's just not designed to rely fully on the automation. Now, sort of level three is the first level, it's called sort of conditional automation, where uh, you're still supposed to be paying attention, and you have to be prepared to take over at a relatively short period of time. Now, it's, it's a little ambiguous. The definition doesn't specify uh, exactly how, how much time that is. And then uh, level four is the idea that within, and this is a really important caveat, within its designed operational design domain, the vehicle, the, the, the human can fully rely on the vehicle to do all the driving tasks. So you're, you're actually permitted or intended to be able to check out. Exactly. So level three, is that what we see in some luxury vehicles now that, you know, maybe the Tesla has a auto drive feature or something like that? Most observers would, would call that level two. And Tesla has said that they believe they can get to uh, level three or level four using the existing sets of sensors. But there are frankly a lot of folks that are skeptical that that's possible. So there's a lot of effort to get to level four. And there's actually a lot of concern about level three in particular. Level three does seem 
troubling to me because uh, if it's not good enough to to be relied on, aren't isn't it a risk? Aren't you giving you're giving the driver uh, a little bit of a training wheels, but you're saying you still need to be a skilled cyclist? No, that's a, that's exactly right. And there's a lot of research on how terrible uh, humans are when they're asked to. Well, you just need to sort of pay attention to something. Most of the time, it's going to be incredibly dull and boring. But every so often, you're going to need to intervene in a life and death situation. So it may even make you a worse driver. It, it might. Before Waymo spun out of Google, Google uh, had a program where they would let engineers drive or use these vehicles. And they sort of very quickly became alarmed at uh, the way that even their trained engineers would come to rely would come to rely on it um, and essentially assume that it was capable of doing everything all the time, even when they were sort of specifically cautioned that it, it was not. Since, as you described, there's not currently a uh, a car in the market that's a, a level three, it's conceivable at least that automotive progress may skip it. It no, could go from, that's exactly from two right. to four. And the other important thing to point out is that this isn't, you know, this isn't teleological. It doesn't have to go zero, one, two, three, four, five. It could just jump right to level four or level five conceivably. You've written about tort law, and in in tort studies, often the car accident is the classic example. Which driver is at fault? What's the proximate cause, et cetera? How does this shift when the driver is a software or some type of cloud-based artificial intelligence? No, that's a great question. And the, I mean, the short answer is that there's likely to be a shift in liability, at least according to theory, towards the vehicle manufacturer or the software developer and away from the individual driver. Oh, that sounds like a, a real sweat off the back of American drivers. <laughs> Well, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be sweat off the brow. Uh, was the expression sweat off the, sweat off the brow? I wouldn't be. Wouldn't be too sanguine too too quickly. There's sort of a number of theoretical reasons to think there's likely to be the shift in liability, but there's lots of sort of real world practical reasons to think that any shift in liability is likely to take a long time and may never occur. So the the theoretical reasons to think there likely to be a shift in liability is partly is just sort of commonsensical, right? Does it make sense to blame the driver when the driver's not doing the driving? I mean, you could use the analogy of a taxi cab. If a cab hits another person, you're not suing the passenger, even though the driver is is the agent of the passenger. No, that's that, exactly right. And I mean, to, to sort of cover, uh, you know, torts uh, in about 30 seconds, there's sort of three classical justifications for tort law. One is sort of economic deterrence to try to deter dangerous activity. Uh, second is uh, civil recourse or corrective justice, sort of the idea of to create a mechanism to allow people to remedy wrongs. And then the third is compensation for the injured. Um, and in all three, there's an argument that there should probably be a shift away from the human driver towards the manufacturer or the software. Yeah, maybe you can walk through those three. So one I, one seems pretty obvious. Why punish someone who had nothing to do with the accident? Arguably. Exactly right. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And there's, there's uh, I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but there's a, there's a sort of a theory of the economic analysis of tort law that says, well, what you really should do is put liability on, on the person who's the, the cheapest cost avoider. So the, the organiza- or the organization in this case. Because what you're really trying to do is create incentives for, for efficient safety. And the idea is it doesn't make sense to put the incentives on the 
human driver. How do you stimulate uh, the market to create a safer car? Exactly right. What's the organization that's going to be more sensitive to those incentives? And, and frankly, there, even back in the early 70s or late 60s, there were some scholars that argued that actually the manufacturers should bear more of the liability so that they would design safer cars. Instead, the sort of conventional attribution of a car crash, and not unjustified, but is to, it's one driver's if fault. I'm driving the, the car and I uh, exactly. ran over your your yard gnome, then I'm to blame. Exactly. I now, tried to think yeah, of a, a less tragic A example. less tragic example. I mean, even that, and this goes back to the point I tried to make earlier, that any attribution of causation for any crash is to some extent arbitrary, right? So any crash has a, a, a myriad number of causes. And sure. we often simplify in our analysis, and, and particularly in the so, case of So uh, what about my, my yard gnome? Your gnome? Well, so, you know, it's partly the road design, right? Where the location of the road was vis-a-vis -vis the gnome. If that had been different, your, your gnome would be fine. Maybe there should be more public land between Maybe individual be yards. And, and, yeah. and, and, or, yeah. or again, I mean, while we're in the world of hypotheticals, if your car uh, maxed out at uh, 25 miles an hour, Maybe you would have been less likely to lose control of it. So, or if it was surrounded by really thick bumpers, or if um, the visibility of the window, well, the visibility of the windows had been different. I mean, okay. again, it's easy I, I to see where think you're going. of hypothetical other potential causes. Now, that doesn't but, mean. But that you predict. I mean, a, a lot of scholars predict that with autonomous vehicles, the liability will start to shift. Who is it shifting to? Is it the the software designer, the car manufacturer? Where does it go? Well, it's a little unclear. And while there, uh, there are lots of these sort of theoretical reasons to think it, it might shift, there's also a lot of real-world reasons to think that shift might not occur. And that has something to do with the way that the automobile law system works today. And, I mean, after, after I was in law school, I uh, got into a, a minor fender better, and, and I was called my insurance company, and I was like, all right, well, you know, we can depose these three witnesses, and we can subpoena the city for uh, their records of uh, this and that and the other thing, and we can figure out what the traffic light timing was. And the insurance person listened to me very politely, um, but said, you know, well, why, why don't we just write you a check for the $200 of damage it cost? <laughs> um, and, Which actually and, seems like the smart thing to do. There. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And the point is, though, that, that there's just sort of this vast disconnect between tort law theory in the way and all the panoply of, uh, of the legal system and the way that 99% uh, of automobile crashes get resolved on a daily basis, uh, which is if there is any kind of dispute, it, it, it's not worth anybody's effort and it's not worth the money to like uh, find the theoretical possibly. It's more like an actuarial it's decision. More, it's, and it's very administrative and it's, it's a sort of a rough justice kind of thing. And again, particularly for small dollar figures. And even when the insurance companies disagree, they don't, they don't usually take it to court. They have an arbitration facility that, that quickly decides, again, it may be imperfect, but it, it works and it's quite efficient. So what's the roadblock? Why wouldn't it be easy to quickly go from that to, okay, I run the leading AI software for automobiles, I build into my, uh, my business model that there's going to be some accidents? You could. Right now, we're just the AI companies and the autom automobile manufacturers lack that entire infrastructure for compensating. They don't have insurance adjusters. They don't have, I mean, right now, it's the, it is the very rare case that involves the OEM. What was the OEM again? Sorry, original equipment manufacturer. So the, okay. the, the, 
Fords, the GMs, the Teslas. And the vast majority of cases are simply resolved, again, quite quickly and relatively efficiently through these administrative processes. And it's the existence of this administrative system that is one of the reasons, one of the real-world reasons to think that uh, there might not be this quick transition to a system where the manufacturer is more liable. And you say manufacturer, but it could be, you know, it could be split. You know, I mean, manufacturer, let's imagine the, the Tesla example, they're working on developing AI. They also create their own cars. That would be very clear combining the two. But hypothetically, let's look at, at Google, for example. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, think that's, I think that's right. It could, it could certainly be split. It could be, and, and to some extent, where, where you put the liability uh, can also shift. So, for example, captains of ships are historically responsible for their vessels. Now, that's true even if they did nothing wrong whatsoever, right? So even if they did absolutely everything right and behaved personally, perfectly reasonably, they're still sort of conventionally thought to be responsible. They're strictly liable for their vessel. Now you can do the same thing in this, in this instance. Let's say you could say that the driver of the car, the human operator of the car is strictly liable for the operation of the vehicle. It's one thing if, if you're saying that about you know, the safest uh, trampoline, where I can look at a trampoline and see, you know, I can, maybe I can jigger the pillars or, or, or the, the, the base and see what feels safe. But here we're talking about really complex software engineering where the individual purchaser might have no idea whether the Mercedes AI or the Toyota AI was, uh, was different. Well, and I, and I think that's, a, that's an argument that the individual consumer is probably not, to use the jargon earlier, the cheapest cost avoider, is not in the best position to make that allocation or to make that judgment. But it could be the manufacturer. It could be, even if they don't necessarily know what the, the, the details of the, of the relevant software, they may be in a better position to judge in a sophisticated way what the best software is. And then and deal with it contractually, right, too. So they could say, look, if we're going to use Google, if we're going to use your or Waymo, if we're going to use your software for our vehicle, you have to indemnify us. You have to agree to pay us and reimburse us if we get sued because uh, your software is at fault. With the conversation around liability, is there an argument for a no-fault system where when there's a car accident, neither driver is involved? The no-fault question is an interesting one. The U.S. experience with it has been sort of decidedly mixed. So originally, the idea of no-fault and the, and the reason it was very popular in the 1970s was that there was a, the idea was that it was going to reduce costs and it was going to be a more efficient way uh, instead of so trying less to, lawsuits, less, less lawsuits. Instead of fighting about who was at fault in a particular accident, it was just going to be well, it doesn't really matter. You just uh, recover from your own insurer and your own first-party insurer would cover your costs, and you didn't have to worry about whether the other person was insured and, and fighting about that. The problem is that it didn't actually create much cost savings. And there's, there's a bunch of reasons that, uh, that that's the case. Did it not encourage safer driving? Is that part of it or, um, or not related? That's unclear. The data on that and the, and the studies on that are fairly mixed. I'm personally a little skeptical that people are going to drive more carelessly uh, simply because they have the sort of the you know the human coinsurance right that they're in the vehicle <laughs> they're in their rational human being still wants to stay alive even if their risk of paying out of pocket has gone down yeah exactly there remains a, a sort of debate in the literature on that but what there I don't think remains any debate is that in general costs in no fault states for auto insurance certainly didn't decline and in many cases uh, increased. So as a result, the, the argument for no fault here 
is a little unclear. I mean, the, but I don't know that it actually would clarify that much. And if one of the key benefits of automation is fewer crashes and fewer at-fault crashes, then by switching to a no-fault system, you lose that benefit. And so your insur- if your insurance doesn't depend upon uh, the extent to which you create at-fault crashes, then that probably reduces your incentives to buy an automated vehicle that gets in fewer at-fault crashes. There's also the possibility that if we see this, this shift to autonomous, I should say, that the individual is actually stepping out of the liability position and the manufacturer or, or, or autonomous software company is stepping in. And there, if, it's, if that's the case, then you have fewer players and there may be more efficiency in allowing them to kind of work things out on their own. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think that's right. The other sort of thing we haven't really talked about is, is that most of our discussion today has been premised on the assumption that you'll still predominantly have individually owned vehicles. So, for example, Waymo is uh, actually having, I, b- I believe on the road today, level four vehicles that are operating in, in very specified geographic locations out, outside Phoenix, but that are, that are essentially robo-taxis. So it suggests that what you may see are, rather than uh, cars that you can just go out and buy yourself, fleet-operated vehicles. So if, if your car is only being used 95% uh, of the time, maybe now either you loan your car back to one of these fleets or it's a fully owned fleet that uh, it's an autonomous Uber, if you will. No, exactly right. And that, and that creates or it, it changes the insurance problem, right? So then you're talking about commercial lines of insurance as opposed to individual. You're dealing with more sophisticated actors by and large. And if there's a crash, Presumably, the the fleet owners will be again will be dealing with commercial insurance as opposed to individuals. Another liability question, which is you know maybe the software is running the car, but there's got to be some human responsibility. Maybe maybe you didn't pay for that software upgrade patch, or you didn't. Is there no, no, I, no, absolutely no. I mean that and and that creates some complicated liability issues, right? I mean, suppose the. Uh, manufacturer pushed out some uh, emergency software upgrade that, for whatever reason, the individual user prevented from loading or uh, in whatever way, a crash occurs that the software upgrade would have avoided. Who's liable in that circumstance? And it's a really interesting thought experiment because I'm thinking, well, maybe you didn't get the, the oil change that you needed or you didn't you know, swap out the tires. But in theory, the car could be doing that itself. It could be knowing that it needs to drive back to its oil change facility or, or tire shift facility at, at certain intervals. The technology creates a lot of interesting legal questions. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all going to tend to come back to the question of reasonableness. And did the parties, did the operator behave reasonably? Did the manufacturer behave reasonably? Did the software manufacturer behave reasonably? In the short term, it's likely to create a lot of litigation as these disputes get worked out. In the long run, as the case law becomes more subtle, then sort of everybody knows how everything works and they can either contract accordingly so that they can indemnify one another depending on what you know, the, the software manufacturer can indemnify the manufacturer, the manufacturer can indemnify the driver, or again, what, however it all works out. But, but the clarity will come over time and after litigation. Does this mean a new a new world in terms of insurance or a new world in terms of insurance law? Um, I, you know, I think you're likely to see changes in in the way insurance works, but it's very hard to predict exactly what those changes will look like. 
partly given the uh, sort of the inertia of our existing system, partly that nobody really knows how quickly this transition is going to occur, and partly because, as I talked about earlier, there's some theoretical reasons to think there's, there's likely to be change in who's the party that's in best position to uh, minimize crash costs. There's also, again, this lot of infrastructure and a lot of existing customer relationships that doesn't go away overnight. You know, talking about insurance, is this also a mechanism that could eventually push towards a fully autonomous fleet? And I guess what I'm asking here is, as the safety of autonomous vehicles increases, you have to imagine that insurance costs for non-autonomous cars will start to shift up and up. The recent experience with various automated features, you've seen a decline in uh, crashes as a result of things like automatic emergency braking. But um, the, actually, the, a lot of the claim costs have actually risen because you have bumpers that are full of expensive sensors. And ah, so, so where you might not have gone to your insurance at all, now you will. Yeah, or you know, if your steel bumper from your 1960s vehicle got bent, have the guy now with a hammer a and straighten it out. Um, or you just drive with a bent bumper. I think it's likely that as vehicle manufacturers get more accustomed to this, they'll put the sensors in safer places and, and, and they'll become cheaper over time. But at least there's no guarantee that, that you'll necessarily have uh, claim costs decreasing. It may be that as there's more autonomous vehicles on the road, if they're actually getting better, it may make it slightly safer for the non-autonomous cars because there, there's a little less room for error. Yeah. Or, or I, a little less error. No, I no, I, I think that's a, a plausible and even a likely um, uh, hypothesis. If the automated vehicles, I mean, this is something I think automated vehicle testers and, and developers are wrestling with, is how to design their algorithms to cope with unpredictable human drivers doing crazy things. Yeah, it'd be easier for them if they had a yeah, if, I mean, full control of the fleet. And it's it's always easier if you're if you can create uniformity, that that's a lot. I mean, you know, so for example, we've had automation on uh, what transportation engineers call dedicated guideway systems. So like this morning when I was in the Pittsburgh airport, I got on a shuttle underneath the ground that took me from point A to point B, no driver, totally automated. There was no way to get on the track. There was no nothing crazy that was occurring on, on the track. And so, you know, for a long time. This, this is what? This is the, the air train? At, uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, no, this is actually in Pittsburgh. But there's okay. a, there's a there's a sh- underground train that takes you from the land side terminal to the air side terminal. Uh, it just goes back and forth, totally automated. I mean, I think at the Atlanta airport has had something like that for, I don't know, 30, 40 years at this point. So, the, the, I mean, the technological problems, uh, when you have a dedicated guideway that you can exclude and completely control, are a lot easier. And actually, this brings up a, a point that you you mentioned very much in passing, but uh, which is aerial drones. There are some who actually predict that human-carrying drones will come before terrestrial automated Fully vehicles. Fully automated cars. Oh, uh, wow. Simply because there's less craziness that's going on in the air. And so it's a more predictable environment in many ways. Google engineers tell a story when they were testing their vehicle, and there was a woman chasing a goose and some goslings going around in circles in the road. <laughs> and and they were so they weren't just crossing they were they, in no, the, they were in on the road, a highway or on a road on a road on a on a road and they were and this woman was chasing this this uh, goose around in circles that's kind of crazy right and and to develop a software system that's robust enough to handle that to some extent now it, 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 for, it probably doesn't have the human to know, brain the duck brain and and well, how it, it, it doesn't necessarily have to know what all those things are but it has to recognize these are humans and i need to do, or this is a human and i need to stop 
A quick pause for those listening for CLE credit. The code for this interview is 90101. Again, that's 90101. And now back to the interview. We talked about safety and how automation promises to remove the wild card of driver error and uh, perhaps millions of deaths that it causes. There is a risk, though, with any new technology of being hacked. Uh, maybe we can talk for a bit about security issues in an automated fleet. No, that's, I think that's a, a, a real issue and a, uh, and a concern of a lot of both the manufacturers and observers. What's the worst case scenario? What's the... What, what's the danger that we really need to be keeping in mind? If you assume that a hacker is able to take control of a vehicle from outside the vehicle, it's given that, it's not hard to think of some very bad things that could occur. You could have every vehicle turn 15 degrees to the left and cause... Wow, so a simultaneous uh, mass car accident. Exactly, or you could have vehicles that are, you know, again, essentially, you know, four thousand pound, you know, steel things with uh, either explosive in the case of gasoline uh, or a flammable thing in the case of battery powered vehicles. So if you send them all towards uh, a nuclear power plant or you know something You're else, weaponizing the you could the, exactly. The, 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 I mean, that is that is the the sort of a concern. Now, I think the likelihood of that occurring is very low. And there are uh, numerous you know, very smart, very hardworking people working to make that whatever probability there is there smaller. But it's difficult to say with any degree of confidence that it's zero. And we've certainly seen over the history over the last 25 years that lots of things that people thought probably couldn't be hacked, uh, you know, have been. There's also sort of an interesting question of insurability. I mean, so automobile insurers... Is this the, the black swan scenario where... I don't know if it's a black swan scenario. So automobile insurers are, are very good at insuring uncorrelated risks. And, and you know, this is liability insurer insurance in general functions on this idea that you aggregate all these uncorrelated risks. And so my, my car accident in Tennessee, it shouldn't be related at all to someone driving in, in Seattle. Exactly right. Exactly right. And it allows you to, and that's, that's sort of the fundamentals of how insurance works. Now, if your car accident in Tennessee is the same is from the same bug, even setting aside the risk of hackers, it's from the same bug as a car accident in Seattle. Well, you know, you, you could potentially change the entire pattern of loss, which would change the uh, the basis for insuring for how they calculate for how they calculate that. Now, throw a, a hackers into it, and so that that becomes much harder because then you're trying to anticipate a sophisticated human opponent or potentially sophisticated, and then throw a, a, a nation state on top of that. And suddenly it gets to be much more challenging. And, and this was a bit of a problem in the wake of the September 11th attack. Property insurance uh, for terrorism became very difficult because insurers were concerned that there could be uh, a, a mass attack and that the terrorism risk was correlated. It seems like governments are going to have a lot of thinking to do in the next years dealing with automated vehicles, whether it's what to do with this workforce uh, that may be out of a job and how to redesign our roads or cities. What are you seeing states doing? What, what are you seeing the federal government doing so far? 
Well, so far, the federal government's been fairly hands-off. And I think because um, it's still, the technology is evolving quickly. And so uh, one of the challenges of regulation is being confident enough that you sort of got it right um, and can usefully specify the appropriate regulations. Um, so, so you don't want to you don't want to jump in too soon and put your your thumb on the scale. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly right. Regulation sort of exists with a background of uh, the common law liability system, right? So even in the if absence, somebody dies, there's going to be a price to pay. Yeah, the liability system can serve to some extent the regulatory function. If someone does something unreasonable and unsafe, and someone is hurt as a result, uh, there's at least some likelihood that they will be sued, and then that will create an incentive to behave safely, even absent any regulation. Now, uh, regulation has a, you know, in some ways can work in harmony with uh, the tort system. So in some cases, the violation of a regulation can be relevant evidence to show that the defendant should be found guilty, or not, sorry, not guilty, liable in, uh, in tort. It can also, in some cases, preempt tort liability. So Congress can pass a bill that says, here's the regulatory structure. If you manufacture and meet this regulatory framework or this regulatory standard, you cannot be sued in state court. Or your liabilities may be capped. Or your liabilities may be capped. And and the the advantage of that approach is it creates clarity. The disadvantage of that approach is that it and sort of the development of state common law, and it's it's a very inflexible system. And so you better be pretty sure that you your regulation's right before because you start before, you, before you, you fix it in there. So without, um, you know, getting too much in the details state by state, is this something that, that needs to be ratified? Do states need to go to their local, even city governing bodies or state governing bodies, make a, a decision, will allow driverless cars? Yeah, I mean, sort of not necessarily. In the absence of any uh, any clear legislative authority, you know, it's not clear that testing automated vehicles in a particular place is illegal. There may so, be a rule that says you have to have a driver's license, and how do you get a computer to pass a driver's license test? Yeah, no, I mean, that that's the kind of, and, and certainly various statutes can require amendment and updating, and that will have to occur at some time. But, you know, there's there are also a lot of laws on the books, even today, that are totally antiquated, and no one ever got around to revoking, and that we just ignore, right? So just because there's a law that says something doesn't mean that it has any... There may be a law in North Carolina that a certain number of people can be barefoot in a house at the same time. Okay. I have no idea, but that's certainly plausible. <laughs> and, and no court's going to enforce no, it. But if there's no enforcement, then it doesn't have much real-world effect. One, you know, let's go way into the future. One, I don't know if it's a boogeyman that's brought up, is that not only are we moving into an autonomous world, but we may be moving into a world where manual driving could become illegal. Is that something that, that you've given thought to? I mean, I think it's pretty unlikely. I mean, it's possible. And, you know, maybe 100 years out or something. Or uh, um, off-limits for non-computers. That's more likely. I mean, you know, so the interstate highway system right now, for example, you, you generally can't take a horse and buggy on it. <laughs> and, and, you know, there are various restrictions as to the kinds of it. You can't take a bicycle. Um, you, you probably can't take a, a Model T Ford on it. Yeah, I don't, you, you might not be able to. Certainly restrictions along those lines strike me as likely. Wholesale bans on uh, human-driven vehicles, yeah, it's possible. 
but uh, again, strikes me as unlikely. You know, given our history uh, of of driving and and, and how love much, for driving as a country. Well, and and yeah, I mean, again, that that's that could change, but uh, you know, it's it's hard to envision that in my lifetime. All right. Well, James, it's wonderful having you here. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's been a, a treat, and we'll have to maybe we'll have you come by another time to talk about uh, autonomous drones. <laughs> Be happy to. <laughs> For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.